in the youth room with Luke. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to begin reading at verse 11 and go through verse 21. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Jerry will be happy to slip you a Bible so you can follow God's Word with us and study God's Word together. Again, let's remember, we want to make sure cell phones are off or text messaging beeps are off and all of that so we can be free from distractions. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 21, if you'll turn there in the New Testament. Now, to remind you as we get started in our study this morning... That the first section of Ephesians, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, the course covers chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Apostle Paul, he's in prison, he's in Rome, he's under house arrest. He's waiting to go on trial before Caesar Nero. And while he's there, he takes pen in hand and he begins to write to the Christians this letter that are in the city of Ephesus. And he writes to them about all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And then he would write to them about how we've been rescued from our dead spiritual state because of sin. God has saved us by sending his son to die on the cross of Calvary, and he rose again from the grave, and he's alive. And because he's alive, when we come in faith, we are then passed from spiritual death to life, to everlasting life. And you've been saved by grace through faith. You are trophies of his grace. You are his workmanship, created, created that is, in Christ Jesus for good works. And then as we were in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul would make sure that the, particularly the Gentile reader uh, who didn't have the promises and the covenants like the Jews did, that he said, you who are considered afar off, now you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our peace, and you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you belong to him, and you are ones that belong to the single entity that is called the church a holy temple unto God, made up of both uh, Jews and Gentiles that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this, this holy temple, the church, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, verse 20 of chapter 2, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And then in chapter 3, Paul would continue to discuss and tell us of the mystery revealed, that is, that all of us are fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promises. And so as I mentioned last week, that Paul makes sure that we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. That is, that we understand the, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. You're chosen and you are forgiven and you are adopted and you are redeemed and you have an eternal inheritance. And he goes on and he goes on and he goes on telling us of the spiritual blessings that are ours found in Christ that come through him. And then he makes sure that as we understand that we belong to this thing called the church, we're fellow heirs and of the same body, partakers of his promises, then this is how it is that you are to walk, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And once you've been seated in the heavenlies, now you can walk here in this life in a way that pleases the Lord. And in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 that we began to look at last time, we got through verse 10, then we see that we are told that we are to walk in unity. We are to walk in the the unity of the bond of peace in the body of Christ. And then when we get to verse 17 here today, that we will see that he will then begin to discuss how it is that we walk in purity. So let's pick up our text at verse 11 of chapter 4. 
Jesus Christ, our victor, gives us gifts, gifts unto men, as you recall uh, that he was writing. Uh, He would uh, say to us uh, in verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then as he is going to be sharing those spiritual gifts in verse 11 here, so to maintain the unity of the bond of peace, verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. In verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so, Father, this morning we come here and we desire to hear from you. And Lord, we desire to learn of Jesus, not just about him, but we desire to just continue to marvel at this privileged status that we have as Christians and belonging to the body of Christ. That, Lord, that uh, we are here, you desire to make our lives have real purpose and meaning, and, and Lord, to be able to guide us and empower us and gift us in that way that we can be a part of this body, this thing that is holy unto you. So, Lord, help us be attentive, our ears open and our hearts soft before you, And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So God giving gifts, gifting that individual in the office of spiritual leadership in the church, called by God, gifted by God. Some, as we begin to look at this, he gave to be apostles. Now, oftentimes in Paul's letters, as you know, as you've read his epistles uh, in the New Testament, he would identify himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. In other words, as Paul was called to that apostolic ministry, it wasn't by his own will. It wasn't that he was called to be an apostle. He was self-appointed or men, you know, appointed him as an apostle. It wasn't given to him that title, that calling because of some school of learning, some seminary. But he says it's by the will of God. God's will and uh, calling and the gifting uh, in that office And as Paul was called to be an apostle and others, now apostle, you know, most of you, that that word means sent out one. Now it's interesting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, that we learn that the Father appointed one apostle, Jesus Christ, capital A, as we read that he is called Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. When Jesus came, he, when he began his ministry, as you know, that the son appointed 12 apostles and no more. It was a unique office, which no longer, of course, exists. And many Bible commentators and scholars and interpreters believe that Paul was a part of the 12 that were appointed by Jesus as they went out and ministered in apostolic authority. Uh, The foundation being built upon the apostles and prophets, as we discuss in chapter 2, verse 20. And, of course, as they were ministering at this time, Paul and John and Peter, uh, they were ministering in that authority as the apostles, and there was qualifications. They had to see their risen Lord and other things, but they had that unique office in ministering in that way. And the debate is this, as he calls some to be apostles, that there are those who say, well, the foundation has been built. The foundation has been built upon the apostles and prophets, 
So there's no longer the office of apostle and, and prophets. But it's interesting, as you read the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, we see that others were called apostles as well. Barnabas was called an apostle, Apollos, Silas, Timothy, James, Adronicus. They were all called apostles. So you have the Father who appointed one apostle, Jesus Christ. Jesus appointed 12 apostles and no more. And as they moved out in apostolic authority, laying the foundation of the church, and the Spirit, I believe, continues to appoint apostles in the gifting of apostles. And that is those perhaps who are sent out ones, those who go out and plant churches, those who go out to those areas where the gospel has not been proclaimed. Matter of fact, I got an interesting email early this morning from somebody who's asking for prayer to, to, for the gospel to go out and for uh, missionaries to go into an area in the corner of uh, Iraq and, and into the corner of Iran that you know a certain group of people haven't heard the gospel. So those who are church planters, missionaries going out, sent out ones using that gift to be able to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to give the truth of the gospel to others in areas that have not been impacted or the gospel has not been proclaimed. So he gave some to be apostles and some he gave to be prophets, second of all. Now a prophet, as you know, is a mouthpiece uh, for God. And they're ones that speak forth words from God. Now, most of the time, when we think of a prophet in the gifting of prophecy, we think of someone who's speaking on behalf of God in a predictive sense, that is, foretelling God's word. And here's the thing to remember. When there are those who are doing that, exercising the gift of prophecy, they're foretelling you know, the, word, the words from the Lord or giving a predictive prediction uh, that the Lord has given to them, that they claim, thus saith the Lord, that it has to come to pass. And we know that the, the qualifications and the way that we can test the spirits to see if they are of God, as John says in 1 John chapter 3, is through the word of God. And also when they speak a prophet in a predictive sense, it has to come to pass 100% accurate, not 90%. Not 80%, not half of the time. And if they give a word from they claim the Lord and it doesn't come to pass, then they're not exercising the gift of prophecy. It didn't come from the Lord. Matter of fact, it's interesting. Deuteronomy not only says that a prophet from the Lord has to be 100% accurate. And you see, that's the wonderful thing about this book. There's all kinds of prophecy that is given here. The prophets of the Old Testament, the prophecy in the New Testament, and every single prophecy has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled every dot and tittle that is given. The, the foretelling of God's word, and we can be sure of it, the sure word of prophecy, as Peter would write in his epistle. So it has to be 100% accurate, but also in the book of Deuteronomy, that Paul, or that is Moses, was told by the Lord that Moses, if they give a prediction and say it's from the Lord and it comes to pass, but they lead people away from the Lord, they lead them away from me, then you are to reject that prophet. So we need to understand what the Bible has to say about prophecy, but also not only is it foretelling God's word, but it may be that the prophet is foretelling God's word that is consistent with the word of God, does not contradict the word of God. When Paul was writing about prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, for you note takers, he writes that he who prophesy 
Christ speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So he edifies the church. And 1 Corinthians 14 goes on to tell us that prophecy spoken is subject to the discernment and judgment of the church leadership. Matter of fact, a couple weeks ago, I got a letter from somebody I never met. I don't know who they are. And I opened the letter, and it says, I am a messenger from God, and I have a message for you, Pastor Jeff. And in the first couple sentences, I was able to wad it up and throw it into the trash because it was not according to the Word of God. It contradicted the Word of God right off the bat. So testing everything through the Word of God, which is our final authority, what the Word of God has to say, the gift of prophecy. Thirdly, he gave some to be evangelists. There are those that are specifically gifted to preach the good news of salvation. When we hear that he gave some to be evangelists, who do we think of? We think of Billy Graham, right? We think of Greg Laurie. We are all called to share the good news, but these are ones that are just gifted uh, to, to, uh, and anointed to evangelism. Uh, making the gospel plain and relevant and easy to understand. And there are those who have that anointing, have that gifting. I know somebody that is in ministry, and everybody that he meets, it seems like, he is so eager and has a desire, and he's anointed and gifted to be able to give the gospel message. He's bold in it, and he's excited about giving it. And it's wonderful to see the gift of evangelism being worked out in his ministry. And then there is the gifting, as Paul said, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and then the pastors and teachers. There is the gifting or office of pastor and teacher. Now, sometimes you hear in Ephesians chapter 4, the fivefold ministry. Here, I believe, and, and, and uh, as we look at the Greek, that it refers to one. And that's the way most Bible commentators see it, the pastor-teacher. Now, there is the gift of teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists that as one of the spiritual gifts. But just as Paul would say in that chapter that there's, you know, a diversity of gifts, there's differences of ministry. You may have the gift of teaching, but you're not called a pastor. You may have the gift of teaching, you're teaching the children in children's ministry. Uh, one of the ladies gifted in ministering to others' ladies in a, in a Bible study. Maybe you're gifted to teach a small group or, or whatever it may be, but not necessarily called to be a pastor. Now, here's the thing. The pastor must teach, and we see that in Scripture clearly. The qualification of an elder pastor is to be able to teach, First. Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, as well as Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Teaching and making application, not given over to, to weird winds of doctrine. So the pastor teacher must be able to teach. He is gifted to teach, teaching God's word. And as a pastor teacher, then as I am called to that office, as I am called to, to be the pastor teacher, as I'm called to be able to, to be in that place where God has gifted me, that I am able to teach and feed you the Word of God. It was Jesus, as you recall, that told Peter, as Peter was commissioned to ministry there on the shores of the Sea of, of Galilee, that Peter, I'm calling you to ministry, and I want you to feed my sheep. But also, the pastor teacher not only teaches, but he is to shepherd. And you know that years later, that Peter would write about that, as we saw recently in our study of 1 Peter, that in chapter 5, as he's addressing the elders, Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, nor as lords over those entrusted to you. 
So the pastor teacher, not only able to teach, but has a servant's heart, not lording over, it's serving the people, is not someone who's trying to make a name for himself or trying to become popular or, you know, uh, you know, the one that sees himself as the top dog. He is to be the servant of all. He is to feed the people and serve the people and care for the people. And then the pastor teacher is to be an example to the flock. Paul would write to that young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, be an example to the believers in word and in conduct and in love and spirit and in faith and in purity. We are to be blameless. Paul writes above reproach and of good reputation. I've had men, I think about my pastor who's gone home to be with the Lord, Pastor Chuck Smith. What a godly example he was to me in being a pastor teacher and being faithful to teach the Word of God, how he had a servant's heart, and I saw that worked out in him. He was a godly man. He was one that, that I can learn from and see, and I've had others that were godly examples to me of being a pastor teacher, being faithful to teach the Word of God, serving their people, loving their people, living after the Lord. So here, Paul, he says that in the church here, he himself gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers, and there's a purpose, verse 12, again as we read, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The purpose of these gifts of leadership so that people might be equipped for the work of the ministry, so that there's edification in the body, so that the body of Christ, we can all be built up. You see, the church is not just about putting on some big production, amusing people, entertaining people, or, or me trying to make you feel good all the time. But I am called, as I exercise my gift, to teach you, to ground you in the Word of God. And as I'm doing that as a pastor teacher, it's going to help equip you for the work that God has for you. It's going to build you up. There's going to be edification that takes place. And that biblical concept is dying by the day in the church today. The use of the gift of pastor teacher, equipping the saints for the work in the ministry. Why? Because we've already discussed that we have a ministry that God desires for us to have. We all are called to ministry. And he desires the gifts us in those ministries that he's given to us so that we can do it, that we can do it according to his will, according to his grace, as we've learned. Every Christian is to minister. And perhaps you've been in a church or you know of somebody that's in a church that the mindset and the mentality is, okay, pastor, you do the work of the ministry. I'll do the work in the ministry what comes my way, but primarily, and the priority for me, is to be teaching you the Word of God, to be in prayer for you. And as I teach you, it's going to help you be equipped to do the work of the ministry. You see, every Christian is empowered to serve by God. And the pastor teacher, what I am to do is to point you to an ever-increasing dependence on Jesus Christ. And Jesus never intended for Jesus few select people to do the work of the ministry. And as we're doing the work of the ministry, just as Paul makes that analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that here are many parts, many members of our physical bodies, all working together, right? 
our fingers, our hands, our arms, our legs, our feet, our eyes, nose, mouth, ears, all working together in unity so that the body functions in a way it's supposed to. That analogy is used in the body of Christ. We're all different members. We're all gifted with different gifts. And as we function in those those callings that God gives to us, ministry, and he gifts us and equips us, as we do that, then the church grows and the church expands and there is unity. I pray that Calvary Chapel is a place where you can come and be built up where you will be encouraged to do the work of the ministry. And it may be ministry here within these four walls, helping in all kinds of areas of ministry. But I also know that it may be equipping you to minister in your home, mom and dads, as you're raising your children in the ways of the Lord. It may be to equip you to, to help with your elderly parents. It may be that some of you, that, that as you minister outside these four walls here in the church, you go to nursing homes. Some of you minister to children, you know, in, in, at school. Some of you are in other ministries that are found here in, in this area. Youth for Christ, Pregnancy Center, all kinds of ministry that takes place. And it's a blessing to see, and it's exciting to see God using you for the edification of the body of Christ, for the building up of the body of Christ. In verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So verse 13 here, again important, as believers, as we function in the giftings and callings that God has given to us, three things take place here as we learn in verse 13. Number one, as I've already touched on it, the body as a whole enjoys unity. We're all working together. We're all working together so that the church may function in being a light to a dark world and bringing edification to the saints and building up uh, the believers in the church. And listen, you don't have to be envious of anybody else's ministry. You don't have to be jealous. You don't have to uh, be upset. You don't have to wonder, why can't I be like them? God has a ministry for you. And he desires to gift you and to call you and to see you through as you just allow him to work in your life and to yield to him. And as we realize that, then there's unity in the body of Christ. And that's how we maintain keeping the unity of the bond of peace in the body of Christ. Second of all, what happens is that we become more spiritually mature, not only as individuals, but as a church, we become more spiritually mature to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. Not that we're perfect or a perfect church or a perfect individual, but it talks about mature. That's what that word perfect means, that we are growing as a church. We're growing as individuals, and the Lord desires for us to grow individually and for this church to mature and to grow. That's what we should be doing. I don't want ever just get into a routine. I don't want to just kick it in cruise control. I don't want to just, you know, go through the motions. He wants to grow us. He wants to use us. He wants us to be active and continue to mature. And then thirdly, we become more like Jesus in all his fullness. In verse 14, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. We are to grow not only individually, but as I said, corporately. We're to mature into men and women, how? Grounded in the Word of God, so that we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And a Christian 
who is not making a commitment to grow in the Word of God will end up being unstable and immature and end up riding the bandwagon of every new Christian fad that comes blowing into town. And I've seen that happen. Because they refuse to get grounded in the Word of God and check everything through the Word of God. It may sound good. It looks good. It's all exciting. They get all hyped up. But it's not from the Lord. And as Paul writes here, he uses that term, tossed to and fro. Hey, you're not to be that way. It's the same word that is used in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, to describe the stormy Sea of Galilee. And listen, those who come along, who want to to bring false doctrine or that which is false into the church, they will prey on those and deceive those who are weak and they are young and they're not grounded in the things of God. So Paul tells something very important to these Ephesian believers and to us, that there needs to be a commitment to truth. And they would heed Paul's word because after this, Jesus writes a letter to the church of Ephesus and he commends them how they were committed to the truth of God's word. We are to speak the truth in love, Paul writes. In other words, there's to be a right spirit. Speak the truth in love. Because here's the thing, truth without love can be harsh and brutal at times. Love without truth can be flaky. It is a sign of maturity to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all things unto him who is the head, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Jesus Christ is both the source and the goal of all Christian growth. And we grow spiritually in Christ. We become more Christ-like. We're loving each other like Christ loves. And we come together in unity and love. And the church becomes this powerful witness before the Lord. We're all using our gifts. You have a function. I have a function. And the church comes together in the way it's supposed to. Knitted together in love, as he writes, ministering out of love. And now verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling had given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now keep in mind, as you know, that whenever you see that word therefore, the writer, which Paul in this case, he's making a connection in what he has just declared that is, walk worthy of the calling in which you are called. You believers in this holy habitation or temple, God has brought together, so keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here are the spiritual gifts for that and for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. You are no longer to be spiritually immature, tossed to and fro from every wind of doctrine, but you're to speak the truth in love. And therefore, because of that, now we enter into this section that now we are to walk in purity. He says, our walk, which speaks of the manner of life that we live, should not be that of the Gentiles. When he uses that word Gentiles, he's speaking of unbelievers. That's the meaning here. We as Christians are told that we are to live differently than those of the world. We are to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. We don't just live any way that we want. We live in a way that God wants us to live. And you know what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you know the verse, that if anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we're new in Christ. We're alive in Christ. At one time, we were dead spiritually, as you remember chapter 2 declared, but made alive through Jesus Christ. And now, as we live in that newness of life in Christ, we don't go back walking the old way. We don't go back to the old life. So the change that has taken place inwardly, listen, should result in a change outwardly. Kind of interesting. I've talked to some, even pastors, that got that backwards. They think if you dress yourself up and you appear this certain way, if you change yourself outwardly, it will change you inwardly. It doesn't work that way. It's like cleaning the fish before you catch the fish. You have to change inwardly. And that's going to be a change that will take place outwardly. So Paul will discuss what it means, as we'll see next week, to put off the old man and put on the new man. So as we're commanded not to walk after the Gentiles, after the world, how is it that the Gentiles walk? Well, first of all, verse 17, let's read it again. They were told in the futility of their mind. In other words, they're focused on empty things, vanity, depravity, things that are worthless, that lead to nothing is the meaning of it. That really is the reality of a person thinks apart from Jesus Christ. And we know that Romans chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, don't be conformed or shaped to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are to think differently as Christians. We are to renew our minds. The New Testament tells us that over and over and over again. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ. Meditate on these things. All that that we're told, which means thinking and focusing on the things of God, those things that are good and holy, and our minds are not to be set on worldly things and worldly lustful things, sinful things. And I've just got to say this. It does matter what it is that you're putting into your head, into your minds. What it is that you're reading, what it is that you're listening to, what it is that you're hearing. And listen, I'm not giving you legalism. This is wisdom. Why do you think that Madison Avenue spends hundreds of hours in coming up with a 30-second commercial so that you can see the images, you can see that thing and think, wow, I am not going to be happy unless I have that. I am not going to be satisfied unless I eat that. A lot of thought goes into it because they know that they can affect your mind. And we have the world all around us, so it's really important that we be renewing our minds and we be ones that we be meditating on the things that are pure and those things that are lovely and trustworthy and praiseworthy, as Paul writes to the Philippian church. So he describes the Gentiles' walk, first of all, in the futility of mind, And then second of all, not only are they pursuing worthless things and thoughts, but verse 18, having their understanding darkened. Now the apostle would write in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, for you who like to jot down notes, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools. In other words, they were not thankful to God. They did not not give honor to God. They did not submit themselves to God. So their thinking was futile or vain. They are morally senseless, and their understanding is darkened. 
In other words, there is an absence of spiritual understanding. It's darkened. Their hearts are darkened because they have rejected the light, Jesus Christ. So a futile mind and a darkened understanding leads to a third thing, which Paul lists here, and that is being alienated from the life of God. They've rejected the truth about God and a desire to receive and know the truth of God. And we look at the world and we see those who live and they do what they think is right in their own eyes. Do you realize that's the whole theme of the book of Judges? And those of you who have studied Judges, you know that Judges was a time in the history of Israel, a terrible time, where they pursued those things that were vain and those things that were lost, and there was great moral decay, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. It was depraved, and it led to more depravity. And that's the theme of our society and our nation now, is people are doing what is right in their own eyes, and we're going to see that it's going to get worse if we don't repent and turn to the Lord. It's going to get worse, and it's going to be moral decay that's going to continue to decline. We're going to see that there's going to be a greater degree of pursuing those things that are false and vain. And that's what happened in the days of the judges. Because they did what was right in their own eyes. Their spiritual ignorance. And listen, as Paul goes on to write again, he says ignorance because of the blindness of heart. It speaks of a hardness of heart. There are some people that you might be thinking, really? Because I know someone who's not a believer and they have a sense of right and wrong, but they don't discern spiritually. You see, you can have a person that seems to be moral, but there's still a hardness of heart. They're not spiritually discerning. How do we know that? Mark chapter 3, Jesus went into the synagogue and there were the religious leaders, and they were so moral, so righteous to the people, it seemed like. But Jesus was angry because, as we read, because of the hardness of their hearts. They didn't care about God. They only cared about themselves, their traditions. They didn't care about the people at all. So Paul here writing about a depraved heart and a dark heart, which leads to a, a hardened heart in verse 19, who being past feelings, as we read it again, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness, with greediness. Paul writes that they've given themselves over. It speaks to turning themselves to. Being past feelings has the idea of skin becoming callous, no longer sensitive to pain. You go from a depraved heart to a dark heart to a hard heart. You're no longer sensitive to the conviction of God or even your own conscience after a while because he writes you're given over to lewdness, which speaks of no longer hiding your sin. You just flaunt it in front of everyone. Do you think we see that today? Throwing off all restraint and having no sense of shame or fear. There are some things that are just shameful. And people today, they have no shame and they flaunt their sin and immorality. And then they want you to celebrate it with them. Uncleanness here speaks of sexual immorality. And it's interesting here as Paul connects greediness to uncleanness. In other words, there's a continual lust for more sin. They're not satisfied. We think of greediness as somebody who wants more possessions or, or wants more money. It's not just that. They want more sin. They want more worldly pleasure. They want more immorality is what they want. So again, Paul is painting this black, bleak picture of man apart from Jesus Christ, just as he did in chapter 2. 
when he said you're dead spiritually. You walk after the course of this world before you came to Christ. You conducted yourselves in the lusts of the flesh, uh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and mind. But then as you turn to Jesus, he rescued us. So that's the perception of God to those who are not given to him. That's their spiritual state, chapter 2. That's how they walk, chapter 4. And listen, Paul is not just giving his opinion and statements on those apart from Christ. He is writing how God sees the lost world, those who live apart from God. They don't comprehend the depth of sin. And when you lose that biblical view of man and the world, you will be deceived into thinking that there is some measure of goodness or redeeming quality in man apart from Jesus Christ. Listen, the truth of the Bible is this, that we are totally lost and totally dead and without any hope apart from Jesus Christ. So Paul makes sure that they understand and that you and I understand. That's how the Gentiles walk. But you guys, you guys, verse 20, and we're going to close with this. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as truth is in Jesus. Here's the thing. We'll pick it up here next time. When we gather into this place, we're not just learning about Jesus, but we learn Jesus. You see, Paul, as he was writing and teaching the Ephesians, as revival would break out on a third missionary journey, people were given over to Christ. They just didn't learn facts about Christ, but they learned him. You see, you and I, as we come into this place, we're going to learn about Jesus, but it's more than that, isn't it? We're going to learn him, and it speaks of knowing him. It speaks of having that close, intimate, personal relationship with him. That's what it speaks of. The Greeks came to Jesus right before he went to the cross, and they said, we wish to see Jesus. They wanted to see him. And it's my desire and my prayer that we in this place, that every time that we come here, that we open up our Bibles, that we just don't have an academic lesson, that we would say in our hearts, we wish to see Jesus. We want to know him and his love and the truth because he is the truth, the way, and the life. It's not just something that we get from him. It's something that he'll be for us our Savior, our Lord. He's our satisfaction. He's everything for us. And may we grow in his love and the knowledge, personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, Father, thank you. We thank you for these verses that are so rich and so encouraging. And I thank you that we can know that you desire to give us real purpose here in the church, to be a light to a dark world, to be edifying and encouraging and building up one another, to be a witness of the reality of Jesus. And so you desire to use us to accomplish that, that the body of Christ may work in a way it's supposed to here, in the unity, the bond of peace, as you use us, as you gift us, as you call us. And may we be encouraged by that and then live a life pleasing to you. And Father, I want to pray if there's anyone here that perhaps that you're not a part of the body of Christ. You have heard the message that apart from Jesus Christ that you are lost and you are dead spiritually. 
But know this, that God loves you so much that he sent his son for you personally. He sent his son for you that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he desires to, to save you because Jesus went to a cross and he died for your sins. He rose again from the grave. He's alive. And perhaps he's knocking on the door of your heart right now, drawing you to himself. Will you open up your heart to Jesus because he is the way, not a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He proved who he was by rising from the grave. No one else died for your sins or came forth from death. Only Jesus conquered sin and death. And he loves you and wants to save you. Will you give your life to Jesus right now? Today is the day of salvation. And you pray right where you are that, Jesus, I come to you a sinner. I come to you, and I desire right now to to give my life to you. I come in faith, believing that you're the Son of God who died for my sins. I am a sinner. Forgive me. I believe that, that you rose again, and I open my heart for you to sit upon the throne of my life. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. And I thank you for loving me. And I thank you for making me a new creation in Christ. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, I want you to come when we close the service and come pray with Pastor John up front here. And We want to bless you. But for all of us, Lord, may we go our way just knowing that we have a privileged status in the Lord. 